Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Thank you, thank you. Um, we are excited to be with you today. And hey, husband. Yes, dear. I love you. Oh, man, I love you He too. was expecting me to say happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> this is a little game we play in our house. I'll give you a little insight. We try to catch the other off guard when they're not expecting us to say I love you. And hey, Vicki! She says, what? I love you. <laughs> so that's the little game we play in our house. <laughs> but we are so glad you are with us, whether you are here in the building or watching online. In fact, our host online today is Pastor Stephen. And um, we are going to talk about marriage, but not just marriage, but relationships in general. But if you are watching online and you are married, Please let Pastor Stephen know how many years you have been married. So um, that will be a fun little interaction he can have with those watching online. Yeah, it is really exciting for me to be able to come alongside Vicki and uh, really to be a part of this church family through the ministry she provides. And having been a pastor in, in a number of other churches, we've done ministry together, you know, since we were teenagers. We met in high school. We met in the youth group and uh, dated through high school, got married early, and raised our kids in church, and it's just awesome. We're, we're, we're thrilled to be able to you know, speak into this series that Pastor Neil started last week, We Are Family. Uh, the local church is described as a family, and uh, really the strength of the church can be seen in the strength of the individual families that are in that church. And we're going to unpack it just a little bit even further to say that the strength of the church is based on the strength of families in the church, and the strength of the families in the church are based on the strength of the marriages within the church. And again, as Pastor Neil mentioned, this message, we know that whenever we preach about marriage in church on a Sunday morning like this, there are people that aren't married, and maybe will never be married. And how do we make sure that we communicate the value of singlehood, which unfortunately in the church we've sometimes missed. We've not really validated the call or the circumstance where no one, you know, someone doesn't get married. And you're just as, there's a, there's a value in everyone, whether you're married or not. And so as we unpack the dynamics of the marriage relationship, it certainly has applications to all of your relationships because essentially what we want to talk about in this message in the series, We Are Family, we want to talk about the marriage relationship, but we want to talk about how, how much different we are as husbands and wives and how different we are that God made man and he made woman. And we'll look at a, a keynote passage in Genesis in just a moment. Uh, but the reason we're wanting to unpack this and really talk about this is because I think we've all become affected in some way, shape, or form, when a marriage doesn't go well. Uh, maybe you grew up in a home where your mom and dad got divorced, or you have a brother or sister, they got divorced, or, you know, when a marriage divorces, it really, it really hurts a lot of people. It really is a, uh, a negative experience for everybody. But it's not just the marriages that end up in divorce. Let me tell you that marriages that don't get divorced, but they never get their full potential. They never reach that place of really thriving in that love relationship, that also is like a swing and a miss. A batter goes up to the plate and swings and misses and was just a half an inch from connecting and sending the ball over the fence, and it's a swing and a miss. I know what I'm talking about when I talk about a marriage that really doesn't reach its full potential, and it's not because of our marriage. 
And we don't have a perfect marriage, but we have a dynamic marriage. We love each other, and we champion each other, and we've navigated some difficulties through 36 and a half plus years. But I know what I'm talking about as it relates to a marriage that doesn't go to divorce, but it doesn't reach its full potential. And the reason I know that is because I'm a child of divorce. My parents divorced, and they didn't get divorced when I was a child. They didn't, they didn't get divorced when I was a teenager. My mom and dad called it quits at 42 years of marriage. I was 36 years old. And I'm telling you, it really flipped me upside down. It was really, really traumatic for me. And I, I, we don't have to get into the particulars of why that all happened, other than to say that, that even marriages that don't reach their full potential, they never divorce, but they never really connect together in a thriving relationship. That would have been the description of my mom and dad. And we as children, I had an older brother, a younger sister. Unbeknownst to us, our parents were in a, an emotionally disconnected relationship. And though they provided a wonderful home for us and they loved us and all of that, we never really heard any of the I love you's between the two of them and we didn't hear a lot of I love you's to us, even though we were very much loved by the way in which our folks cared for us. So the point of the message that we want to bring to this church family, and this is not just for the married couples, but it's for all of you. Uh, if you're a young person, odds are you'll probably get married at some point, but you might not get married. But you're going to interact with people that are going to be different than you. And you're going to wonder, why is it that I'm always lock, knocking heads with somebody at work or in my neighborhood or in my class or whatever the case may be? It might be because of the gender differences. And that's what we kind of want to unpack in this, in this uh, message here this morning. And I'd like to have you take your Bible and open it up to Genesis 1. And the theme verse comes from verses 26 and 27. Maybe you're on a device. Uh, open oh, your device or your Bible, and is our, as is our custom here at Cedar Valley, we like to stand when we read the primary text to give honor to the Lord and give him our full attention because he's going to speak to us as we read together. Vicki's going to read these two verses. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Then verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All right, let's pray. Lord, we have just heard your word read, and we have followed along in our Bibles. And we pray now that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. The word of God is inspired, but we need to be illuminated so that we can hear what you're saying, so that your word and your truth can make the impact in our lives. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you're seated. This passage of scripture, if you are a Bible reader, was raised in church, perhaps you're visiting today at Cedar Valley for the very first time and you don't have much Bible knowledge, that's okay. We're glad that you're here. But this passage of scripture is, has, a, has a very simple kind of concept to it that we want to use as a springboard into unpacking uh, in this message. And that is that when God created uh, all of the world, and then created Adam, and then created Eve. Sometimes we think about this idea, this false idea, that when God created everything, and it was good, and then he created Adam, and then he said it's not good that he's alone, and we kind of think that when God created Adam, God missed something, and so he had to create Eve at, to complete the picture. And I don't think that's a, 
I think that's a false concept theologically. I think that God from the very beginning knew that he was going to create man and then he was also going to create woman. Not purely for the sense that they would procreate and multiply in the earth, but I think that what, I think what our God, our Trinitarian God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when they, when they were conversing together and they said, let us make man in our own image, and let's make humans in our own image, I think that they were conversing to say, for us to fully make human beings, to, to fully reflect the divine nature of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we, get, we, we need both man and woman. And in order for us to fully represent the divine image on the planet, we need men and women because together they more fully reflect the nature of who our God is, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, in so doing, in so doing in creating a man and creating a woman, he made them different. And that's why we have the sparks that fly between us, especially in marriage, because we're different. We were created differently. Now, as we talk about some gender differences in this message, we also know that we're, we're kind of stereotyping a little bit. We're, we're, we're painting with a real broad brush when we say that men are kind of like this and women are kind of like that. So please understand that it's a, it's a broad sweep. In generalities, this is how God made us so different. And the differences have a way of bringing conflict in a marriage. How is it that I can be married to my best friend for 36 and a half years and still at 36 and a half years, something can happen where she says something or does something or I am fatigued and I'm tired and it just hit me the wrong way and I can become so frustrated with the with the person that I love more than anybody on the planet how can that be well it's just the nature of this marital relationship that God created I I don't know if you remember what Ruth Graham the wife of Billy Graham said when she was asked one time have you ever thought about divorcing your husband the great Billy Graham and she said quickly I've never thought about divorcing him. Now, murder, several times I've thought about that. <laughs> Which speaks to the concept that we're different. And because we're different, it's good, but it requires us to navigate. How do we navigate through that? And we're going to unpack three ways to do that. Yeah, marriage and relationships in general have differences. And that requires us to work at relationships, to get to know each other better and to go deeper below the surface and so that's what we're going to help you with today. Differences often can divide. They can cause conflict. But on the other hand, if we have understanding and we take the effort to go deeper in our relationship, it actually can bring two people closer together when we understand those differences. Differences can lead to conflict, like I mentioned, which can cause stress and unhealthy compromise and possibly even divorce. And we don't want that to happen. So I want to share a story uh, about the growing up years of Doug and Vicki. Now, we both grew up in Montana, and I grew up on the farm. Doug grew up in the city. But as a farm kid, we often in the summertime would work up work outside, sun up to sundown. That was very typical. And at night, I just remember as a kid looking up in the sky, and there was something comforting about looking up into the sky and seeing all of the stars. And Montana is known for, uh, it's, being, it's been called big sky country because you can see the sky for miles. And I just remember thinking, God created the heavens and the earth. He created 
all this vastness, and yet he created me, and he knows me intimately. And that brought me great comfort. But I have also learned as I grew older that if you take a telescope and you look up into the same sky, you can see greater detail. You can see more constellations than you can with the naked eye. And you began to understand that this vastness, this awe, this wonder actually begins to turn into appreciation about what, how big our God is and what he can do. Well, that is the same with relationships. There's a lot of detail that God made each of us uniquely. And so we have to uh, take out the telescope and look a little closer at that detail so that we can understand one another at a greater level. The more details that you learn about the other person, the better you can understand who God created them to be. You no longer focus on what is different, but you begin to focus on why you have those differences. And it's because God made them. Now we're going to give you the big so what right at the beginning of our message because it's going to be a common theme that we're going to weave through everything we share today. And so um, the big so what is God made us different to make us better. Let me say that again. God made us different to make us better. Differences are a good thing. So Doug said we're going to talk about three areas of differences, and the first one is the male and female brain. We are hardwired differently, very differently. And so the science uh, of the brain has always been very intriguing to me, and I like to read about it and learn more about it. Let's look at Psalm 139, because this talks about the creation of a human being. Psalm 131, talking about God, says, You know everything about me. In verse 13, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14, your workmanship is marvelous. And so we have... This God who intimately knows every detail about us, and he challenges us to learn about others as well. God made the male and female very intentionally. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, when it talks about God creating the sky, the earth, the sea, God says when he looks at the creation, he says, it is good. And he says it five times in chapter one. It is good. He creates it as good, it is good. Then he creates the man and the woman, and he stands back again and he looks at everything he created and he said, It is very good. In other words, he was happy, probably elated with what he had created. And that speaks to us that you and I need to be good with who he created us to be. And we need to work at understanding one another because this will bring our relationship closer together. Now, some of these differences are noticed very early on, even as an infant. All right? A little infant girl actually will look at the face of an adult, and they will often make eye contact with an adult much earlier than a little infant boy. Now, if we go to the preschool playground and we place a toy on the playground, 
more often than not, the little boy will go and explore that toy first. However, if there is a new kid on the playground, a little girl will go and interact with that child first. Those are just some differences. Compared to boys, girls learn to speak earlier. They know more words. They recall them better. They pause less. And they glide through tongue twisters with no problem. We learn about these differences still while they are a baby in the womb. So I want to give you some simple facts this morning that will help us understand the differences between boys and girls and men and women. And I have learned these from Dr. Dobson's book, Bringing Up Boys and Bringing Up Girls. You see, after conception, both male and female brains appear to be female until week eight. And at week eight in the womb, a male brain is washed with a huge surge of testosterone. Now, his brain is changed radically at that moment, even taking on a different color. The male sex hormone, testosterone, kills some of the communication cells, including a portion of the bundle of nerves called the corpus colostrum. This is where emotion is processed, the right brain, and where language is focused, the left brain. Although the corpus callosum survives the testosterone bath, the male brain will never be able to crosstalk as effectively, which has major implications for future masculine behavior. Now that was a lot of information and I'm gonna break it down into something simple that we all can understand. And that is in the female brain, females like to have several computer screens open in their brain at the same time. In fact, let's just say they have five computer screens open at the same time. Now we like to shift back and forth from computer screen to computer screen and we know exactly what we're talking about. And often men have a hard time tracking that because in their brain they have one computer screen open and that computer screen needs to be closed before they transition to another one. So that helps us understand in our communication with each other that we're going to have some glitches, some things that we're going to have to work through. Testosterone also causes an increase in the number of neurons and circuits located in the boy's sex and aggression centers. A male has up to 20 times more testosterone than the female, and this is why his play can be described as running, jumping, roughhousing, and making loud noises. Now girls, on the other hand, have something called infantile puberty that happens at the age of six months to 36 months when her ovaries produce huge amounts of estrogen comparable even to adult levels. Estrogen bays that female brain in this stage, and we all know that estrogen is called the intimacy hormone. So what happens in this little girl brain, it stimulates the circuits that create an urgent desire within that little girl to be a friend, a lover, a feeler, a talker, and even a bit of a conniver. Oh, so, that explains it. <laughs> conniver, huh? Yes, yes. Um, 
So since God created us to be different, why in the world do we try to change what God intentionally created? We shouldn't. Men speak the language of facts, action, and results, and women speak the language of feelings and emotions. Husbands, you need to know that your wife can link words, emotions, and memories together, and wives, you need to understand that your husband is designed to separate words, emotions, and memories. His brain is built to see conversation as a means to an end, and our brain, us ladies, our brain is built to be, have talking be an end in and of itself. So women are hardwired to talk, and we all pretty much know that women love to talk. But here's what happens. Our brain produces dopamine and oxytocin when we talk. And we know that those are feel-good hormones. So a woman actually feels good when she talks. Now, men, on the other hand, they don't receive that same stimulant from the process of talking. So therefore, their words are more deliberate to express what they have already worked out in their mind. Women can sense tension when she walks in a room and she can discover what the problem is. Men often know how to solve the problem once the problem is revealed. So we need to learn how to appreciate these differences. And it's just a reminder that God made us different to make us better. So we're different in our brain structure. I mean, we all know that the, our physical body between men and women is different, but even in the brain, it's fascinating. Let me give you the second difference that uh, is very interesting and it really uh, comes out in our relationships, and that is family differences, or we would just call family experiences. We, we are the byproduct of the, the way in which God has given our DNA to us through our parents, but we're also the product of the nurture, the, the environment in which we were raised. We, we operate, we behave, we see the world through a particular lens in large part because of the home that we were raised in. And so when we look at the families in the Bible and you look for all the perfect families in the Bible, they're all over the place, right? Wrong. There are no perfect families in the, in the Bible because, uh, because, because God is not ashamed of the fact that some of the families in the Bible had some really glaring uh, problems. God is not ashamed to show us the glaring problems in some of the great Bible heroes to show to us that it's not about perfection. It's not about being a perfect person, and it's not about having a perfect family. It is about understanding where the gaps are. And when we talk about why are we hitting heads, why do we have this conflict, and it might be in part because our brains are a little bit different, but it also can be a result of the fact of how we were raised. So in your family, you might uh, have been raised in a family where anger was handled in a very, very good way, or maybe you're raised in a family where anger was not handled very well. And if your dad was always losing his cool or your mom was always impatient, it had a way of 
filtering or creating a lens through which you saw this is how or you do not handle anger. If you were raised in a family where there was bigotry or prejudice or racism, uh, that created a worldview for you as you grew up. And hopefully as you matured, you understood some of the limitations or some of the maybe inappropriate lenses that were given to you, and you're making mid-course corrections. The point is, is that you and I are behaviorally and attitudinally, we, psychologically, we are the, the byproduct of the nature of our families which, which we were raised. Now, the good news is that things can change if God can get into us and show to us. And if we're, if we're mature enough to be able to say to ourselves, you know what? My family wasn't perfect. Let me tell you that when Vicki were uh, first early years of our marriage and we began to you know, unpack in my mind, well, I think she's this way because there were some inadequacies in her family upbringing. And she certainly could see some things and some inadequacies of my family, but we could never actually address it with each other because to us, our families walked on water. And it took a while for us to mature out of that to be able to actually be honest with ourselves and in conversation and not threatened when something was addressed to me that very well could be something that I inherited from my upbringing. And this is just so very, very, very important because, you know, as you recognize what you received, good, bad, or ugly, from your family upbringing, you also must understand that you're passing it on, maybe even unintentionally into the children that are watching how you handle this or how your worldview is on racism or loving people different than you. We're passing those things on. And so when we look at how do we get some uh, direction from the Bible, what would be one of those imperfect families by which we can see the negative but we can also see redemption? We go to Genesis, and if you have your Bible, turn it to Genesis chapter 27 and just kind of keep it open on your lap because I want to unpack real quickly the family unit that was Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the son, the promised son of Abraham and Sarah, and it took a while for him to come along as a child because his mother, Rachel, was not able to bear children for quite a or Sarah wasn't able to bear children for quite a while, but, you know, through mistakes and bad decisions, uh, Ishmael is born, and so there's this fi family dynamic that creates tension even after Isaac is born. Well, Isaac becomes uh, old enough to marry, and he needs to have a wife, and so Abraham arranges for a servant to go find a wife for Isaac, and Rebecca is the one who is chosen. And we know that Isaac comes from a great family in the sense that Abraham is the father of faith. He's this man of God, trusted God. And Rebekah comes from a good family. And yet there's some signs that this married couple, as they begin to parent their two children, twin boys, Esau and Jacob, what surfaces is a dysfunction. And the dysfunction is clearly seen in that they favorite one of those two boys, Abraham, Isaac favors Esau, the firstborn, because he's a manly man and loves outdoors and he's a hunter. And Jacob is less like that, a little more domesticated, and he becomes the favorite to Rebekah. And there we have this family dysfunction, the favoriting of certain children in the family. Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 27, and let me just see, we'll see how it kind of plays out here. Genesis 27, starting in verse 5, but Rebekah overheard what Isaac had said to his son Esau. Let me just pause there. 
What's happening is that Isaac is getting old and he knows that he's about to die and he needs to pass on the patriarchal blessing and he's going to pass the blessing to his oldest son who happens to be his favorite son, who is Esau. Now, if you know anything about patriarchal blessings in the Bible, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. That when the inheritance comes to these two boys, it's not that they split it 50-50, but the oldest son would always get a double portion. And so it's a pretty big deal. And, and Rebecca hears the conversation through the doorway as Isaac is saying to his oldest son, I'm about to die and I want to give you the blessing. But here's how I want to give you the blessing. I want you to prepare my favorite meal. I want you to go out and hunt. I want you to make a kill and I want you to prepare the food. And after having that beautiful feast, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. You're going to get the blessing. Notice what it says. So Esau left to hunt for the wild game. Verse 6, Rebekah then said to her son, notice how the writer is even showing to us this divide between the, the husband and wife that they've got their favorite children as they are described as his son, her son, when it's actually they're both their sons. Listen, I overheard your father say to Esau, verse 7, bring me some wild game and prepare me a delicious meal. Then I will bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Verse 8, now, Listen to me, my son, listen to me. Do exactly as I tell you. Go out to the flocks, bring me two fine young goats, and I'll use them to prepare your father's favorite dish. Then take the food your father, uh, to your father so he can eat it and he can bless you before he dies. Now, do you, see, do you see how sideways this is? How sideways it gets when we as parents, we favor one child over the other, and how that must have represented this division between husband and wife, that we, we have this separation such that I have my favorite child, you have your favorite child, and you're out to get your favorite child the blessing when I want to give the blessing over here. And so it, it just goes sideways in a hurry. And as we look at the Verses moving forward, Jacob says to his mother, I mean, Mom, it's not going to work. I mean, you can prepare the meal like Esau would prepare, but when the blessing comes, he's going to actually touch me. He's going to pull me close to him, and I, I don't even smell like my brother Esau. He'll know it's not me, and he's going to touch me, and I don't have rough, hairy skin like my brother. I mean, we're different, and so Rebecca has an answer for that. Just go to your brother's closet, get his, one of his hunting garments, and you'll put that on, and you'll have the scent of the wild. And, and here's what I'll do. I'll put, the, I'll put the sheepskin on the back of your neck and on your arm, and when he comes to touch you, it'll feel just like Esau, which, man, the dude must have been a hairy dude <laughs> for, for that to work. Well, guess what? It works. And Isaac, unbeknownst to himself, gives the blessing to the younger son, Jacob, thinking it's Esau. And of course, that creates all kinds of fireworks of division and murderous threats between these two brothers. The, the point is, family dysfunction, if it's not recognized, if it's not acknowledged, if we don't come to understand that we, that we not only inherit some dysfunction, but we pass it on to our children, if we're not aware of it, we see this even explode at even deeper levels in the way Jacob raises his 12 children and it just becomes an entire mess. So the point is, you've got a difference between your brains, but you probably also have some value differences, some cultural differences, some worldview differences in the way you were nurtured in your family. And that sets us up for what God can do in our lives. Genesis 32, starting in verse 28, 
God enters the scene and God makes a change. You see, it doesn't matter how dysfunctional the family you were raised in or the dysfunction in your own life. God can make a difference. And he finds Jacob running away and he says to an angel, I want you to wrestle him to the ground. And in this wrestling match, the angel wrenches his hip and Jacob finally yields And in yielding, he says to the angel, what's your name? And the angel says, it's not really about my name. It's about your name. And I'm going to change your name. Verse 28 says, your name will no longer be Jacob. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and you have won. Here's the point. Regardless of the struggle in your marriage, regardless of the of the dysfunction that maybe you've inherited, your dad's temper or your mom's conniving or whatever it is, God is here through the power of the Spirit to transform you, to change you. That whatever it is you've inherited, you don't have to pass it on to your children. You can pass on the life transformation to the children in which God has given you. So you have a different brain, you've got a different upbringing, and there's another thing that's different. And thirdly, we want to talk about difference in personalities. We are all wired with a different personality. Now, when Doug and I got married early on, I was 19, he was 20, so we got married young. Uh, We understood and knew that our personalities were different, but we didn't know to what extent and how that would affect our relationship. But in the first three years of marriage, we had some conflicts due to our personality. We were new, not only newly married, but we were new in ministry. And as we were serving in the church, Doug would always say, Vicki, how many people did you talk to today while we were in church? And I'd say, well, one, two, and I'd name who they were. And he's like, Vicki, you cannot do that. We are pastors and we have to reach out to people. We have to help them feel valued and feel connected. And you need to do better than that. You need to reach out to more people. And I always felt really awful about that because I wanted to do that, but I am a high introvert, and that is really hard. Relationships, um, getting to know people for me requires time. And to touch a whole bunch of people on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, that was just really hard for me. So I felt bad about that. I wanted to change, but I didn't know how, how to change. It was difficult. And then three years in, we went to a marriage workshop, and it was all on personalities. And we learned that the differences were a positive thing, not a negative thing. That actually, Doug's personality that is more extroverted, where he connects with a lot of people in a larger setting, and he helps them feel valued and uh, seen, And me, on the other hand, I'll talk to one or two or three people, and I go deeper in conversation. I talk about their feelings and what happened in their life that week and how God is working and involved. And do you see that both of those things are valuable and both of those things are needed? And so the light bulb went on and we thought, oh, wow, we need to appreciate each other for how we're wired differently instead of pushing or trying to force the other person to be like ourselves. Again, we are reminded that God made us different to make us better. You see what happens when we place expectations on our spouse to be like us? We're actually limiting or hindering their God potential. And let's not stand in the way of who God created our spouse to be. 
Part of seeing your mate through their lens rather than your own requires selflessness. And to be honest, that is a very hard place to get to. Author Gary Thomas says, it takes between 9 and 14 years for a couple to become not entirely unselfish, but rather less selfish, and begin to shift from a me to a we. That's a lot of years. And that can be discouraging, except for understanding that we are a work in progress and God will help us get there as we yield our life to him. So as we prepare to close, we have a couple more scripture verses that we want to share with you. First Peter is a passage of scripture in chapter 3 that addresses husbands and wives. And as I was reflecting on it this week, I stumbled upon a concept that I've never heard anybody really teach on. First Peter 3, 7, speaking to husbands, it says this, In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. And perhaps you've heard sermons that unpack this passage as to how and why husbands need to really love their wives in a beautiful way. But I want you to look at the very first phrase of verse 7. In the same way. Peter is, is, is saying... Now, fellas, I'm going to give you some descriptions on how to be a great husband in the same way. In other words, he's referencing something, and he's saying, in the same way of what I just said, I, here's how I want you to love your husbands. And so we as husbands are saying, in the same way as what? And then all we have to do is go to verse 2. He's talking about wives. Wives must accept the authority of their husbands, yet even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words, then they will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. And in essence, husbands, in the same way that I've already written to how your wives need to love you and honor you, uh, that's how I want you to love them. But notice that wives also, in the same way, Peter says to wives, in the same way. In other words, there's an example for all of us as we think about how, are, how should I be that loving husband, that loving wife. And if wives are the example for husbands, then who is Peter referring to when he says to wives in verse 1, in the same way? Then you got to go back to the previous chapter, and here it is. 1 Peter 2.21, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. So wives, your example, of course, is Christ. And, and as husbands, Jesus, of course, is our example. So as we navigate these differences, brain differences, family upbringing differences, personality difference, who is our ultimate example? It's Jesus. And so with that, we have three quick takeaways, quick now what's, that will help you to activate what we've taught today. Before I mention those, I just want to say this, that in a crowd this size, and even our audience online, we know that there are relationships, marriages that are hurting, that the differences are causing conflict in their relationship. And I want you to know that at Cedar Valley, we have a ministry called Marriage Mentoring. We have trained marriage mentors who will meet couple to couple to help 
marriages navigate through those differences, through those challenges. So if that's you, I encourage you, get on our website, our church website, and look up marriage mentoring and check, check it out because there's help available for you. Now what? How do we apply this thing practically? In other words, the differences that we're struggling with or we're challenged with in our relationships, how do we navigate through that? And so we're going to give you three quick points. And the first one is this, become aware. In other words, recognize what is causing you to be frustrated, to be wounded, to be hurt, and share that with your spouse. So become aware, identify that issue or that hurt. The second thing is acknowledge the issue. This is where you validate the issue with one another. So uh, if I'm the one who's hurt, I'm going to say, Doug, when you did this, that really hurt me and here's why. And then Doug, if he is going to actively listen, which he should, he will say, Vicki, what I hear you saying is this. Is, is that correct? And I'll say yes. Now, he might then say, well, here's why I did this. I did this not intentionally to hurt you, but, and then he explains. And then I would say, okay, Doug, what I hear you saying is, is this. Is that, is that what you're communicating? In this point, acknowledge the issue you are listening to understand one another. Now, Doug and I have worked with lots of couples over the years, couples who've struggled, who've had challenges in their marriage. And this step is where people get off track the most. And I want to encourage you, this step here to acknowledge the issue needs to be three to five minutes, no more than that. It's not a time to go off topic. It's not a time to play the vic victim and wallow in the hurt. It's not a time to bring up past wounds. It's not a time to prove your spouse wrong. Stay on track, keep it brief, so that you can get to the next step, which is agree on a solution. Don't stay hung up, but acknowledge each other. Come to understand where the other person is coming from. Acknowledge it, then move on and agree on a solution. Here's what needs to happen. The hurt person or the offended person always gets to go first because oftentimes they already have a solution in their mind of what might work to help resolve this conflict. So allow them to offer a solution first. And then, of course, the other person can negotiate and say, well, I wonder if this might be better, or maybe we could just tweak that a bit. How about we do this? So you negotiate with love and respect until you both agree on a solution. So the now what is you have to have awareness, acknowledgement, and agreement in order to work through some of those differences or those challenges in your relationship. I want you to close your eyes and bow your head, and if you're sitting next to your spouse, grab their hand, and I want to pray over you. Lord, thank you for every person here this morning and those that are online, married, unmarried, young adult, teenager, uh, seniors, empty nesters. Lord, we want to be people that are full of your spirit and able to navigate the challenges that come from human relationships. And some of these conflicts, we just struggle because we don't remember that we're made differently, even in our brains. 
And some of our conflicts are the result of the environment in which we were raised in. And some of our conflicts are not understanding that we're different in our personalities. Lord, Vicki and I pray that you would especially touch any couple this morning that are having a hard time and difficulty. And I pray, Lord, help them to know it can get better. It can get better as they respond to these three concepts of being aware and acknowledging and then agreeing that, God, you can help them. We pray, Lord, that you would even minister to people. Maybe someone is here this morning or watching online, and they're struggling. They're, they're searching for God and maybe giving you, God, one more chance, listening to another church service or visiting a church maybe they've never been to before. They just happen to come here to Cedar Valley. Lord, you are revealing yourself to them through your Holy Spirit, and you are drawing them to begin a relationship with you through your forgiving grace. I pray, Lord, do the work of eternity in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, so that we pass on a legacy that can be eternal. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,